That was amazing. I had to say nothing. You guys, if you would excuse me, I'm, I have to lower the pulpit. I'm not quite the man Pastor Ryan is. Um, we're going to be, my name's Brett, and I'm one of the pastors here. Good to see you guys. We're going to be in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, this morning. Uh, so if you want to start turning there in your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible with you, we've got Bibles for you in these black chairback pockets. You can find one there. If you don't own a Bible, you should feel free to take that one. We want everyone to have God's Word that they can access. So go ahead and start turning to Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 38. And will you pray with me? Our Father, we're grateful to be here. We're grateful that you've brought us together. We're grateful to be able to sing to you. We're grateful for your word. And every time I stand here, and I know it's the same for Ryan, we feel totally inadequate for the task of preaching Christ. And so please come and help me to do that in a way that pleases you. And please help us together to hear from you and to respond to your word. Come and be with us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's, it's hard for us to believe, but this week marked nine months that Kim and I have been here on the rock among you guys, and we're so thankful and amazed that the time has gone so fast. And since we've been here for nine months, I feel like I can open up to you about a time in my life of which I am a little ashamed, a time I don't like to talk much about, and that is the years I spent as a Dave Matthews Band superfan. I don't mean the kind of fan that some of you are, like you like to spin one of their records every now and then, you go to the occasional concert. I mean listening to almost nothing else, joining their fan club, spending hours every day on internet message boards, speculating about what's going to be on the next album or which live version of Two Step is the best. I kept in my wallet a signed ticket, a ticket autographed by their violin player, Boyd Tinsley, at the height of my fervor, 2002, I saw them live five times in nine months. And I was still in university. I can't imagine where the money came from to see so many concerts in one year. I would make these mixed CDs for my friends and give them out. I wanted all my friends to know the good news about Dave Matthews Band and to love them, to love them as a band. But I, here's the interesting thing. I didn't want them to be as big of a fan as I was. I wanted them to be sort of moderate fans who would acknowledge that I was the real fan, that I was the one who got them started, that I was the expert to whom they could come for all their questions about Dave Matthews Band. And and even as I look back on it now, I don't know what I enjoyed more, the music or the feeling of finally being an insider, of being a super fan, true blue, being the expert when everyone else was just an amateur. You may not, and I hope you haven't, ever given yourself over to the worship of a musical act quite as badly as I did in college, but I'm sure that in some context you've experienced the phenomenon of the in-crowd. To have a status that sets you apart from everyone else. Maybe for you it showed up at school, like in elementary school where everyone knew the cool table to be sat at and you would never go unless you were invited. Or later in university to be invited to join a club or to go to a party that everyone wanted to be at. The in crowd. Maybe it was at work where you realized to really get ahead, it wasn't enough just to put your head down and do good work. You had, you had to be liked and accepted by and even stay late to work with the people who really held the power. You had to dress a certain way, carry yourself a certain way, treat your assistant a certain way to really be in. 
In some form, you've experienced the in-crowd, whether as an insider yourself, if you're among the lucky few, or more likely as an outsider looking in. So why are there in-crowds? Why does that phenomenon exist? Why isn't everyone friendly with everyone? Why aren't we all on the same plane? Why are we so motivated to be accepted into a group that at least partially exists to keep other people out? Well, to be blunt, it's because we want to feel like we're important. We want to feel like there's something that in this way, in this subject, as relates to this person, I'm better. I have a name. I am the expert. I'm on the inside, and they are left out in the cold, which isn't something we like to think about ourselves, but I think you have to acknowledge that's the truth. That's why these things exist. But certainly, we would never find in crowds among Christians, right? God's people would never ever try to keep certain people out, people that aren't like us or don't believe exactly the same way we do, people who come from different backgrounds, people who look unlike us. We would never try to keep people out, right? We would never look down on people we see as a little bit less holy, a little bit less spiritual. We would never use, Christians would never use religion as a way to make names for themselves, right? We would never find cliques in the church, would we? I wonder, I wonder what your experience has been and maybe you're here this morning because you found Christians here to be warm and kind and accepting, and you want to know what makes these people different. I want to go hear what they have to say. And I hope that's the case, but maybe you're here despite Christians. Maybe you found Christians overall to be kind of cold and judgmental and unwelcoming, and you're interested in Jesus, but you wonder why so many of the Christians you've met seem so unlike him. Well, that's going to be what we talk about from God's Word this morning. So to catch you up, we've been preaching through the Gospel of Mark, which is Mark's account of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which he took mainly from the preaching of the Apostle Peter. And the whole first half of Mark's Gospel, which we finish now, is about who is Jesus? Who is this guy that comes on the stage of history? And we've seen these incredible acts of power, Jesus raising someone from the dead, Jesus calming a storm with a word. And we've heard this incredible authority that he has, teaching in a way that no other religious teacher taught, that left people stunned and out of breath. And it all leads up to this point where Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter answers back, you are the Christ. You are the king God promised to send to make everything right. And Peter was right. He was spot on. And so the the gospel kind of takes a shift from who is Jesus to what does it mean that he's the Christ and what does it mean to follow him? And especially in the last couple sermons, it's been about what does it mean to follow him? What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? And at least in part, it means dying. Following Jesus means dying. He said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Because Jesus isn't the kind of king who just climbs to his throne and and makes everyone do what he says. Jesus is the kind of king who dies for his people and then rises from the dead. And everyone who follows him has that pattern in their life, that their true life comes through death. Not through dying as a martyr for your faith, necessarily, though there's been, there's been plenty of that in the history of the church, but dying to your own way, dying to your own desires, dying to, dying to wanting to do what you want to do, whatever God says, dying to that and going Jesus' way. And we're going to see this morning in two passages that one of the things Jesus' followers must die to 
in order to follow him is the in crowd. Not, not close friendships, not private parties necessarily, but the in crowd, this desire to keep other people out so we can build ourselves up. And if we're going to follow Jesus, that has to die. So, let's look at Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 38, and then we're going to skip a little ahead to Mark chapter 10, verse 13. But first, 938, Jesus said to them, John said to him, John said to Jesus, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Now let's skip ahead to chapter 10, verse 13. And they were bringing children to Jesus that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. So together these two passages this morning teach this message. Jesus' followers are to do good to those who can do nothing for their reputation. Jesus' followers are to do good to those who can do nothing for their reputation. The in-crowd tells us you've got to use people for your own name. You've got to build your reputation. Don't talk to those people. They're going to bring you down. Network with these people. They're going to bring you up. But that's not how Jesus operates. Jesus calls us to be servants of all, servants of the least, servants of those who can do nothing for us and might even hurt our reputation through association. Jesus' followers are to do good to those who can do nothing for their reputation. So in, this past, in these passages, we're going, to see, we're going to see the problem with the in-crowd, and we're going to see three responses from Jesus to help us die to it. So first, the problem with the in-crowd is it keeps people from Jesus. So look again at verse 38, where the apostle John comes to Jesus with some news. He says, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. John, you need to know, is some, he's somewhat of a hothead. Okay? He and his brother were named by Jesus sons of thunder. These are loud, rowdy guys. There's a place in the Gospel of Luke where the disciples are traveling. They come to this village. The village doesn't receive Jesus. They don't want to have anything to do with him. And so John has this idea. He comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to consume them? Like, should we nuke them, Lord? Like, as if that was Jesus' program? And, and so you get the kind of the flavor of the kind of guy that John is. So here we have John. He's out with some of the other disciples. They see this guy they don't know casting out demons in Jesus' name. So he is releasing people from bondage to evil spirits. And so John and the disciples think, we'll do a public service here. We're going to stop this guy from helping people get free from demons. That's our good work for the day. They stop these guys this guy doing this exorcism. Why? why? Why did they want to stop this guy? Was it because he had no power? He was just sort of making a fool of himself? He wasn't helping? He was making things worse? No. It doesn't say that he was trying to cast out demons. He was actually doing it. So then why did they stop him? 
Was it, was it because he was doing it to bring attention to himself? He was casting out demons in his name, setting himself up as a rival for Jesus? No, he was casting out demons in Jesus' name. He was doing good and bringing attention to Jesus. So why did they stop him? John said, because he was not following us. He was not following us. He wasn't in the club of the twelve, of the close disciples. I've mentioned before that I'm a history enthusiast, and one book I've been intending to read is about the relationships between the men who have been American presidents, before office, in office, after office. It's called The President's Club, Inside the World's Most Exclusive Fraternity, which is, and I say this as an American, pretty typically American, right? The world's most exclusive fraternity must be our people. That's where they are. And if that is an exclusive fraternity, and it is, only 44 in history, only five living, it still has nothing to the fraternity of the people chosen, handpicked by Jesus to see his glory and to hear his teaching, even to be sent out to preach and to do miracles in his name. And John was in the inner circle of the in crowd. He was one of the three that Jesus chose to be in the room with him when he raised the little girl from the dead, to be on the mountain with him when his glory was revealed. John was on the inside of the inside. He was special and he knew it, and he wanted everyone else to know it too. So for John, there could be no unauthorized do-goodery in Jesus' name if it was happening outside of the circle of the twelve. It would make it seem a little less special to be an apostle. And it was probably even more upsetting for the disciples to see this guy casting out demons in Jesus' name because earlier in this chapter, we find a place where a man brings his son with a demon to the disciples to see if they can cast him out, and they can't. They can't do it. Jesus has to come and kind of save the day. And so for them to see this other guy succeeding where they failed, and they were the 12, it just really got their goat. And so they said, no, 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 no. No, you got to stop. And so that's the first story. In the second story, we have, these, we have Jesus preaching to large crowds, and some people come to him bringing children, probably parents. Bringing them to him, it says, so that he can touch them. So probably that Jesus can you know, lay his hands on them, pray God's blessing on them. And what parent wouldn't want Jesus to pray God's blessing on their children? So these parents are bringing these kids to Jesus, and the disciples, it says in verse 13, verse 13 rebuked them, turned them away. The passage doesn't say why they took it on themselves to turn these families away, but we know from elsewhere in the Bible, we know from, from secular history, that children weren't seen in this culture, the same way that we see children now, right? In the West, in the modern West, children are the most popular people alive. I would guess that if you're about my age, you've got friends, peers, having kids, every third item in your Facebook news feed is a picture or video of a child under five being adorable, right? That's what we do is promote our kids. They're the most important. We want to get them in front of everybody. When I was still working in Chicago, one time when Joshua, my son Joshua, was about six months old, Kim brought him to the office so that we could show him around, and like he, he magnetically drew people out of their chairs. People who didn't even talk to me at work were standing this far from my child, like high-pitched baby talk right in his face. Everything, when kids come to the office, everything stops. We build our lives around our kids. We build our, we build our schedules around their practices and their rehearsals and their group projects. We make sure they get the best toys and the best schooling, the best preparation for later life. And that's not how it was then. People loved their kids, but they were not at the center of family life. Their importance grew as they were able to contribute to 
the farming, to the business, to the chores around the house. They weren't seen as important people. They were actually near the bottom. So you might remember from last week in the sermon that Ryan preached, Jesus was telling his followers, if you're going to follow me, you have to get low. You have to be the servant of all. And then he takes a child and embraces him and says, anyone who receives one such child in my name receives me. So he says, here's my illustration of how low you have to get, how you have to be servants of all. You have to receive children because they're like at the bottom. And so the disciples here have this pristine, this perfect opportunity to obey Jesus' teaching. Jesus said, whoever receives a child in my name receives me, and then there are children coming. And they flub it. They turn the children away. Why? Because the children aren't important to them. Because the Son of God is a very important person. He has important things to say and important things to do. He doesn't have time to run a nursery. Please take your children and go home. Let the adults do their business. They're trying to turn these families away. And that's the problem with the in crowd. When we begin to treat people according to what they can do for our reputation, which is what these disciples were doing, right? They're saying, if Jesus associates with children, that brings him down. And if we associate with Jesus, that brings us down. So we got to get these children out of here. When we treat people according to what they can do for our reputation, rather than according to Jesus' love for them, we keep them from Jesus. If the disciples had succeeded in stopping this guy casting out demons— then people wouldn't have experienced Jesus delivering power, his power to set them free. If they'd succeeded in turning the families away, these kids would not have been prayed for by the Son of God himself. These guys hadn't yet become servants of all. They were still servants of themselves. Do you ever find yourself treating people according to what they can do for your reputation rather than according to how you can serve them and point them to Jesus? When you're with people, when you're in a social gathering or you're at work, do you drift towards the people who have influence, the people who can help you get a leg up, the people whose status you want to be close to? Or do you drift towards the people that no one else is talking to, the people on the bottom and the outsides of things? Do you network up or do you network down? Is someone being kept from Jesus because your priority is on yourself? You don't want to be seen with them. You don't want to be near to them. You don't, you don't want them to be close to you. If so, you're not alone. And Jesus has three responses to help us die to the in crowd. The first response is that Jesus reminds us of our identity. He reminds us of our identity. Look at verse 14 of chapter 10. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant, indignant that they were turning the children away and said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God, like a child, shall not enter it. So Jesus wants the disciples to see themselves in these children that are being brought to them. He says, to such belongs the kingdom of God. He doesn't say, to them belongs the kingdom of God, as if every child is a Christian, but to such as them, to people like children, belongs the kingdom of God. Whoever enters the kingdom is like a child. How? How like a child? He says in verse 15, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So we have to become like children in the way we receive. In the way we receive. Not, not like children in their innocence or their purity, 
Every parent here knows that children are not innocent and they're not pure, right? They start disobeying way before they start walking or talking, for sure. They're not innocent, they're not pure, but they're totally dependent. They're totally dependent on their parents. They can't do anything for themselves. They can't dress themselves, they can't make their food, they can't go to swim lessons, they can't pay the electric bill, they can't do anything on their own. Their parents have to do it for them. And maybe really polite children will thank their parents for it, but no child tries to pay their parents back. They know better. They receive everything in their life as a gift. Kids are takers, aren't they? I mean, my son Joshua, he's not talking quite yet, but he's a very emphatic pointer. And when I bring him downstairs in the morning and set his little feet on the tile floor, he starts running to where our iPod dock is, and he points at it until I get the music going. And then he runs to the refrigerator, and he waits, he like rocks back and forth on his feet until I give him his glass of milk, and then he runs back to the music to listen to that until breakfast is ready, and breakfast better be coming quick. He just, he takes and takes and takes. And that's how kids are, right? They receive. They just take and take and take, and they don't try to pay you back. And that's how we receive the kingdom, That's how we we gain eternal life, how we become children of God. It's not through earning it by trying to keep all of God's commandments or by, by doing good to other people or by giving generously to the church. You can't buy the kingdom. You receive the kingdom as a child. It's a gift. Listen, we, we, everyone in here, and everyone out there, has sinned against God. We have all gone our own way away from him. We have broken the relationship, and the only way for it to be mended is if the initiative comes from his side. We can't clean ourselves. We can't fix ourselves. We cannot make what's wrong right. God has to do it. And so he sent his son, Jesus, to die in our place, to take the punishment we deserved, to rise from the dead, to give us forgiveness and new life. And the way we receive it is by trusting in him, not by working, not by responding in works or generosity or anything else, but we receive it by trusting in him, knowing that he has done what we could not. The kingdom only comes to takers, to beggars for grace. The Son of Man came to seek and save what was lost. He came not for the healthy, but for the sick. So the first way Jesus responds to the disciples' in-crowd mentality is to remind them, They're just like the kids being brought to Jesus, the kids they're trying to keep out. He didn't choose them because they were notable. They didn't earn their position in his entourage through their exemplary living. They received it. They're as much beggars for grace as the children are, and therefore they have no grounds for keeping anyone else away from Jesus. If we're going to escape the in-crowd, we need to see ourselves this way too. So what kind of community would we be if we knew deeply and thoroughly that we haven't earned anything from God, but that all we've received is by his mercy received as a gift. We wouldn't look down on those who come through those doors at 10 in the morning still smelling like the party from the night before. We wouldn't we would not want them to stay there, but we wouldn't make them get cleaned up before we introduce them to Jesus. We wouldn't take pride in our positions or feel like we're a cut above because we serve in the church, because We give generously to the church because we're on staff at the church. Even if we don't need more friends, we'd be looking for those who do on a Sunday morning at community group. We'd be looking to serve all, to serve the least. We'd be humble 
like Jesus. So Jesus' first response to the in crowd is to remind us of our identity. Second response, he reorients our ambition. He reorients our ambition. Look at Mark chapter 9, verse 39, to see how Jesus responded to John when he came to him and told him about the exorcist. Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me, for the one who is not against us is for us. He says, No one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. And you wonder how that struck the disciples. I can imagine John saying, Lord, no, 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 no. You didn't, you didn't hear what I said. The problem is that he's not following us. Who cares how he speaks of you? Oh, just the light bulb comes on and John realizes and we realize what was going wrong in the scenario. John cared about his name. He wanted the apostles to be famous. He wanted people to point at him and ooh and ah and say, behold, John, one of the twelve. But it wasn't John's name that was supposed to be famous. It was Jesus' name that was supposed to be famous. Jesus didn't call John to be his disciple so John could draw attention to himself, to make himself known. He called John so that John could make him known, so John could preach and write and tell people that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and they can have life by believing in his name. And Jesus didn't come to promote himself because he lacked self-esteem. He wanted more people to like him. Jesus came to promote his name so that people could look to him and be saved. They could come to him. The Apostle Paul tells us that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He says that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The name of Jesus is the name of the Savior in whom everyone needs to trust. And if the disciples' ambition had been to make Jesus' name known, they would have been so glad to find this guy casting out demons in Jesus' name. They would have come back and said, Lord, you're not going to believe this. There's a guy we don't even know, and he is casting out demons for you. Hooray! Instead of trying to put the kibosh on it, they would have helped him. They would have taught him. They would have, they would have encouraged him as he went if they wanted Jesus' name to be known. So if your ambition is to make a name for yourself, your rule has to be anyone who is not following us is against us. Right? If we want to be known, if anyone else is doing their own thing, getting attention for themselves, there's only so much praise to go around. We've got to stop them to build ourselves. But if your ambition is to make Jesus known, and you see people doing good in his name, your rule can be the one who's not against us is for us. This guy wasn't stopping them from doing anything in Jesus' name. He was doing his own thing for Jesus. More people were knowing him, and that's what the apostles should be about anyway, so they should be able to rejoice. They're not against us. They're for us. We're playing for the same team. Something very similar to this happened at the time of Moses. So Moses you may remember, was the man God called to lead his people out of slavery in Egypt and take them to the promised land, which sounds like a pretty glorious job, but in reality, it was like babysitting thousands of whiny children all the time because the people complained because there wasn't any water, and then they complained because there wasn't any food, and then when God gave them food, they complained because they didn't like the food, and all the complaints came to Moses, and at one point, Moses said, Lord, I have had enough of these people. 
I cannot do this by myself anymore. And so God said, okay, take 70 elders, take 70 seasoned leaders from the people, bring them out to me, I will fill them with my spirit, and they'll help you lead. So Moses brought the 70 people out, just as God said. He filled them with his spirit, and they started to prophesy, showing that the spirit had come. And, but there were two other elders who didn't come out who were inside the camp, and they started to prophesy. And so Joshua came to Moses, and this is what he said. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth, said, My Lord Moses, stop them. But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. So Joshua was jealous for Moses' sake. He said, like, Moses, you didn't pick those guys. They're not part of the club. Make them stop. And Moses said, I wish that everyone had the spirit. I wish that everyone glorified God. He, wasn't, he was the meekest man on the face of the earth. Moses wasn't concerned for his own praise. Or think of the Apostle Paul. Paul, who, during one of his imprisonments in Rome, he found out that there were guys who were preaching the gospel out of envy and rivalry, trying to afflict him in prison. So, potentially, these guys were preaching the gospel because they wanted to get the people who had been following Paul to follow them now that Paul is in prison. And so, here's what Paul says. He says, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed and in that I rejoice. His, his joy was knowing that Jesus was proclaimed. He didn't care who did it. If I'm in prison and they're preaching Christ, even if they're doing it to hurt me, Christ is proclaimed. That's all I want. I want, I want the ball moved forward. I want Jesus' name known. So does this ambition drive you? Does this ambition drive you? Do you care if Jesus' name is more known because you exist? because you're alive, because you're here. When you think about how you use your time and your money and your relationships and your employment and your Friday and Saturday evenings, are you thinking, what's best for Jesus' name? How can Jesus' name be known? How can I, how can I make others know him and trust him? Or are you thinking about yourself? Do you see how this ambition would help us die to the in-crowd? If, if we didn't care what anyone else did, as long as they were preaching Jesus, as long as they were moving forward, we could, we could link arms with anyone doing good in Jesus' name, anyone who trusts him, anyone who's doing things for his name. We wouldn't have to protect our tribe. We'd have the unity that comes from pursuing the same goal, not competing for attention. So what kind of community would we be if our ambition was to draw attention to Jesus and not ourselves? We wouldn't need to compete with any other church or congregation. We could learn from and pray for and encourage other churches. We could rejoice. We could rejoice when God sends revival other places and seems to be doing nothing here because we're not about Sunrise Community Church. We're about the name of Jesus moving forward. We could do good to them even though it would do nothing for our reputation. So Jesus helps us die to the in crowd through reminding us of our identity and second reorienting our ambition. And finally, Jesus helps us die to the in crowd through promising us an eternal reward. To this point, Jesus' counsel has been mainly what not to do, right? Don't stop them from preaching, from casting out demons in my name. Don't hinder the children from coming to me. Just quit it. Don't. But it's not enough just to not do something. Jesus wants us to proactively do good to those who can do nothing for our reputation. 
Look at verse 41. He says of chapter 9, For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. And he doesn't say straightforwardly, if you give a cup of cold water to someone, you will by no means lose your reward. He says, if someone gives you a cup of cold water because you belong to Christ, he won't lose his reward. So he has them imagine themselves in the place of need. Imagine themselves being out preaching, healing, casting out demons, walking on long, dusty roads, being totally parched, coming to a well, and there being no bucket. No way to draw water out of the well, and just so thirsty. And then someone comes who doesn't know them, but finds out these people belong to Jesus. They serve Jesus, and he brings the bucket up and gives them a drink of water. Even that little gesture of kindness. He didn't make a meal for them. He didn't set out a room for them. He didn't give them a donkey to get them to the next town. He just gave them a cup of water. Even that little kindness, Jesus says, will by no means lose its reward. So having imagined themselves as the recipients of that kindness, he expects them to see that that's that's what's asked of them as well. He's just instructed them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Servant of all, doing good to those who can do nothing for them in return. Acts of kindness done in his name will have an eternal reward. So what's the reward? He doesn't say. He doesn't say. And it's not something that would make it mercenary, as if Jesus promised you a certain amount of money in the bank of heaven if you would do what he says here. He doesn't say what the reward is, but we know that it's going to be worth having. There are several places in the New Testament where the writers promise that when Jesus comes, all of the people who have trusted him, all have served him, will will stand before him for judgment. Not for judgment that might lead to condemnation, because all who have trusted in him are free from condemnation, but, but judgment for commendation. Judgment for Jesus to reward them for how they served him. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 5, Therefore do not pass judgment before the time Before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and disclose the purposes of the heart, then each one will receive his commendation from God. So we don't know what the praise will be. We don't know what the reward will be. It might be more responsibility in the new creation. It might just be be the reward of hearing God praise us for things that he did by his grace. There was a pastor in the American colonies in the 18th century that thought that the reward, Jonathan Edwards, he thought the reward was that in heaven we'd have a greater capacity for knowing and loving God, that our bucket, everyone's bucket would be full, but some buckets would be larger than others, and we'd have a greater capacity for joy in Christ because we served him well here. Whatever it is, the most important thing about the reward is it sets our hope outside of this life. Because if, if we only live for this world, if we only live for this life, the temptation is so great to just gather a bunch of money and spend it on your pleasures and just use everything you have on yourself. But if what really counts is in the life to come, you can spend your life here. You can give it away. You can die to the things that you think are going to make you happy and live for Jesus, knowing that that the reward will by no means be lost. The Bible says that Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. He looked through death to the joy on the other side and said, 
That's worth it. I'm going to spend my life for these people because there's joy on the other side. And knowing the reward ahead of us will enable us to do the same. So if you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, your true identity is a beggar for grace. God called you to himself, not because you were great, but because he loved you. And he wants to do that for others. So don't keep people out. Bring people in. If you're a Christian, you're being called to an ambition infinitely greater than advancing your own name or fame or promotion or popularity. You're being called to advance the name of the Son of God and the Savior who can make broken people whole. So don't settle for anything less and don't compete with others doing good in his name. And you can expect at the end of a life of faithful service, doing good that doesn't help your reputation and may never be known by anyone but God, a reward that lasts forever. And if we pursue that together, if we pursue that together, here's what we're going to find. What we've, what we've been looking for in the in crowd, people that really accept us, people that bring us in, what we're going to find is that if we pursue humility together and ambition for Jesus' name together, we're going to find something together as a community much greater than we'd ever find in the in crowd, in a place where, where it's all about keeping people out and We're always in danger of being pushed out ourselves. If we humble ourselves and serve one another, we're going to find love that we never found ambitiously seeking it outside. We're going to find unity in pursuing Jesus' name being advanced together that we don't have to compete over, but can link arms and do together. We're going to find together what we always thought we needed to fight for, and best of all, we're going to have it with Jesus. So let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you accept us as children. You receive us as children. We don't have to earn anything. We don't have to prove anything. We receive your mercy and your goodness through faith. We thank you that you are doing something great in the world that we can be a part of, that we can enjoy together if we can see beyond our own name and our own reputation and our own well-being. I pray that you would enable us as a church to humble ourselves, to link arms with people who aren't like us, to find the joy of losing our life in order to find the life worth having. Please help us to be doers of the word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.